Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Mark Brooks. Mark is a retired businessman and highly respected blogger. Welcome to the show, Mark. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's great to have you on. So, Mark, I think, uh, if memory serves, you you may not recall this, but I I seem to recall this. I think our paths first crossed digitally, uh, and I'd probably say several years ago, because uh, I, I, unless I'm speaking out of out of school, and I'm sure I'm not, I think you've developed something of a cult. You ha- had developed something of a cult following in kind of below the line articles on the FT. Am, am I barking up the right tree here? Yeah, that's that's when we first came across each other. Yeah. So you you, you describe yourself as a retired businessman. What kind of business were you in? Well, I was in the I was in business from about the eight from the eighties onwards, and then for the last, and I worked with lots of different companies in different capacities. And from the for the last fifteen years, I ran my own little uh, a little business doing what I love best, which was coaching. Yeah. So I would do coaching. I was I was particularly interested in working with dysfunctional boards, which are everywhere. I mean, it's a huge market, <laughs> and. Conflict resolution. So I would do stuff like um, I don't mention names because you know the two yeah. worlds are very very different. I don't want to upset anybody. Sure. Two companies working together on 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 an IT project negotiated by a couple of big egos. It gets very messy. So I would get a call when it was either sorted out with something. Drastic, like talking to each other. <laughs> really, what you had to? Yeah, people had to do that. <laughs> yeah. So it was either it was either really take the lid off, get all the shit out, and deal with it, or you're going to get the the lawyers in. Yeah. What about like just a good old fashioned punch up? Would that sort it out? Yeah, you could use those Darth those things we used to call them Darth Vader's cocks. Those, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Those big black uh, things of rubber, where you put people in encounter groups and they thrash ten bells of crap out of each other without doing yeah, damage. We lost our safe rating quite a, <laughs> uh, quite a while ago, so there's no no danger of it getting reinstated anytime yeah. soon. Now there's, there's no bleeping that out, is there? I mean, it's not going to make any sense. Oh, that's. Funny. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Uh, should I ever keep my language? Uh, no, 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 not at all, not, not at, at all. all. Uh, join us in a d- deep dive in. The water's <laughs> lovely. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I, I, I used to like getting involved in the 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 messy stuff, the human stuff. The I've tried everything else except talk to the guy. Uh, help me out. What would you do about Brexit at the moment? How would you try and sort that out? I mean, that's like, it's just impossible, isn't it? How long have we got? Yeah, well, as long as you like. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't view, um, I'm going to have to put this into context, because I don't view Brexit or or anything, actually. I I, I don't view things as binary issues. Now, the question, leave or stay, was a binary issue. But that's not how I see what what's happening. When um, 
when I was at the FT, writing at the FT below the line in the comments section a number of years ago, as Tim mentioned, um, I I argued very plain. Well, I didn't argue for it. I said, look, I am voting leave, and this is why. And and the way I described it then, and I still feel the same now, is, and this didn't go down well with the FT uh, journalists at all, because they have a very different worldview. The way I see it is that the, the, the system that we call crony capitalism is collapsing. So economically, I would describe it as crony capitalism. Politically, I'd describe it as, as neoconservatism, i.e. That, that model in the West of that is, it's the elite model, if you like. It's breaking down and it's, break, and it's, it's like an avalanche that's forming underneath. You you know, by the time we always blame the last snowflake for the avalanche, but actually the avalanche the avalanche has been happening for a very long time underneath, deep fissures that grow underneath. Now, so politics and economics, the current the basic currency of it is trust. The, the basic currency of a society is trust. When the trust goes, the permission to govern goes, and the systems start to break down. So for the last 30 years, uh, and, and and it's much much longer than this, but it's just this is the period of time when I'm thirty forty years when I've been paying attention. I've seen a gradual erosion of that trust, and about well this century actually it started to come to a head. So would you I, would you would you attribute that to any specific um, political or economic development? I mean, just and, and to kind of get ahead of you, I would because I would, in, a, in an economic or financial sense, take it back to 1971 and Nixon taking the dollar off gold, because when you no longer have a currency that's tethered or a debt climate that's not tethered to reality, in other words, you can print money and create debt pretty much to destruction, then you will abuse that power. So for me, it's the sort of the early 70s is when the rock really started to set in. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually I would pretty much agree with that. I would agree with that. I think the, the problem, you see now, you see, when you say that, you get the people rushing out of the, uh, out of the woodwork saying, oh, well, you're saying we should go back to gold and the gold standard would never work and da-da-da-da. That's not what we're saying here. What we, what, well, at least what I'm saying is that's when it started to break down. The fundamental reason it started to break down was because America was printing money beyond its means. Um, and, and de Gaulle basically said, uh, I'd rather have the gold. I don't yeah, trust. Exact, exactly. It was the, yeah. the French that triggered a run on the It Europe. was the French that triggered it, yeah. So the, the Americans abused the position of privilege, really, which was it was almost inevitable from when they set it up in Bretton Woods that it was going to happen, and in six and in the sixties when you had the uh, the guns and butter. Do you remember Lyndon Johnson? He so said, a big big society, um, yeah. Vietnam, Vietnam War, and huge welfare state. Exactly. So you're, you're effectively you, you've got a currency that's linked to gold, but it's not linked to gold because you're devaluing it entirely. Nixon comes out and says. We're coming temporarily, that was his phrase, off the gold standard. And then actually, Tim, and I know you've seen these graphs, if you look at the um, 
uh, for example, the rate of well, uh, the rate of wealth growth amongst the top one percent and the what the Americans call the middle classes, which is basically people with a job. We might call them the working and middle classes. In America, it's middle classes. The graph diverts. One goes up like a hockey stick and the other one bumbles along on the floor. If you look at the growth of uh, debt, it all it all starts to go crazy from that point, which is a long way of saying I agree with you. So if, if that's the backdrop, and let, let's say you're, you're in a position of supreme omnipotence, uh, and you were wanted to act on the for the best part no, for, for the for the for, for everyone's best interest for the for the best interest of the majority of the people how would you go about re, if you could how would you go about reformulating the system well that's a good question and it's one i've thought about a lot i haven't got an answer to it i think it's clear because, sorry to interrupt because for, for me everything comes down to well it's interesting because we had we had a chap um guido hulsman on the podcast mm. about a month or so ago and when i think paul asked him effectively what would you do if you were in charge i i think both of us found his response quite quite uh intriguing uh, guido would make no bones about the fact he's he's heavily into uh, so-called austrian or, or classical economics as yeah. am i and his response was basically get government out of the educational system which is an interesting place to start the debate yeah, it is an interesting place to start the debate. But I, I mean, if we can go back to the to the Brexit question, yeah. yeah, and I can sort of finish that thread. I think we I might we might arrive back here. So that the, the economically, you've you've highlighted seventy one and the whole thing with Nixon and the gold standard. Then, if you look. If you look politically, come forward this century. When I see that the, the, the two, the main fissures in in people's trust for government developed, the Iraq War, mm. where they lied, that on both sides of the pond, uh, you know that little creek Bush lied, the little our little varmint, Tony Blair lied, and they took us to war on a lie. And now they're not in jail. What would you What would you say the, the the purpose of the war was then? So we were taken into it, arguably, and I would agree with you on under false pretenses. But yeah. what was the purpose of the war in the first place then? Uh, other than to for the US to secure you know mineral rights in in the Middle East. Well, the, the, which which whichever party is in the White House, there if the foreign policy in Washington is is dominated by by the neocons, and this has been the case since um, the late nineties when they the, the resurgence of them. They did the, the project for a new American century. I don't know if you if you feel familiar with that, but it was a bunch of neocons in America described the way the world should look in the new century which is a continuation of American domination. And it was very clear from from that point onwards that there were a number of countries that they wanted to invade or they wanted to, to sort out Middle East, but not just in the Middle East. And so um, 9-11 formed the excuse for Iraq. 
but actually there was an uh, there's it, 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 I mean, so, sorry just to, to pick you up on that point uh, alone looking at this as a kind of objective observer mm. the iraq war doesn't stack up set against 9-11 because the the attacks of 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 11th of September 2001 were committed by Saudi Arabians. Exactly. And it's, it's like saying, well, we've been invaded by Saudi Arabia, so better, better, better go to war with Afghanistan then. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the whole, but the whole thing is crap. I mean, you, you, you hear um, Pompeo now comes out and says, um, Iran is the, is the world's leading sponsor of terrorism. Now, he knows that's not true. He absolutely knows that that, that the, the world's leading sponsor of terrorism is Saudi Arabia produces them and Washington pays for them. So, yeah, I, I, it was the whole thing was totally nonsensical. But so to go back to my point, politically, the, 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 the trust in society all around the world, because we're talking the, the big systemic picture here, yep. people lose trust in government. So then you have the, uh, you, you know, the, the financial crash of, of 07 to 09. And again, even though a lot of people don't pay attention, we know, people know that they were screwed. People know that the Fed came in and came out with all this, all this bullshit about this is the only way we, deal, we can deal with this. And essentially, they saved the banks and they took Main Street under the bus. So that, there's another thing. So these, these are cracks that are happening across the globe. They're cracks in the fabric that holds the whole thing together, which is trust. So people do, are not trusting government. So then around about um, in fifteen sixteen, I was commenting in, in, in the FT. The FT had a basic position that, that, that Trump is the, was the worst thing that was ever invented by humankind followed closely second by Brexit. And they were all at it, uh, Wolf, Rackman, Stevens, Ed Luce, a lot of them. And what I was saying was, um, this is a symptom of this thing that I've been just been talking about with you. This is a symptom. If you look at what's been happening in Catalonia, if you look at these are symptoms of a of a system that is breaking down because it fundamentally doesn't work. It's fundamentally unfair. It's fundamentally corrupt, and it's breaking down. So they were coming out with this. Oh well, this is populism. But, you know, typical taking absolutely no responsibility. The people in power not taking any responsibility for the way things are and blaming you know the plebs. I mean, this is this is rich, isn't it? So what's happened since that point is just accelerated. I wrote a piece about this called The Quickening. And if you look at what's happening now, the breakdown of that system is quickening so that we've now got, we've now got uh, the, the, the yellow vests have been protesting in Paris for 50 weeks now. We don't see it on the mainstream. There, because there, there are, to that point, there are rumours or, or hints that the coverage of the, the 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 riots in Paris have been the 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 result of a, a so-called D-notice, whereby yeah. uh, it, it, it would be a breach of the Official Secrets Act if you actually reported on it in the UK. Do you do you happen do you attach any credence to that? Well, I've heard people denying that, saying that there isn't one. 
Yeah. But, but you know, given it's a D notice and you're not supposed to talk about it, who would know if there was one or not? Yeah. So, yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know whether it's official in any respect or whether it's nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But I do know our media is um, utterly – well, they're as much used as a chocolate fire guard. I mean, they're – and it's, it's, it's worse than that, though. But, I mean, this is something that I think this is this is probably why, you know, we engaged in the first instance, however many years, five, five or six years ago or so, with the sort of common, common dis- distrust and probably closer to contempt for what passes for objective media. Because I'd, I'd say the, the the problem is that, OK, so you, you can accept or not accept that there's a problem in the economic sphere and, and the governmental sphere. That problem is then exacerbated if the media is giving a highly partisan view of things, which basically bears no relation to reality. Exactly. So the, pro- so the problem I, I, I think like you have with the FT is it's, it's, it's not even, it's not even providing fair coverage. It's all it's doing is, is it's like saying, well, a lot of bad stuff happened, but you know, don't, don't, don't look at that bad stuff here. We've got a, you know, a case that's, that, that's completely different. And it's just like, I, I can't believe what I'm reading. It's like, we, it's like everyone saw the, 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 the crash, the accident, whatever it was, and it's like, no, it didn't really happen, actually. Uh, don't, don't look at that. Look, look this way. And it's like sort of a, a shell game or something. It's, it's, it's really bizarre that, 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 that the media are attempting to, to give this gloss to something when I think the average reader has a strong, a strong suspicion that, that what, what they are being told is absolute nonsense. It's completely absurd. It's cognitive dissonance. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that that then is reinforced by the by the whole Brexit process. So I mean, I, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but for me, one of the best, absolute, most superb writers on this topic has been the uh, British philosopher John Gray in the New Statesman. No, I've not been following him now. John John Gray, and and you don't even need to pay for the New Statesman, so you can get I think two articles per month free. Just just go onto the New Statesman website and then just put in John Gray G R A Y. And he's yeah. he's analysed his stuff. He's got like a sort of philosopher slash historian's perspective on this. But it's absolutely superb. If nothing else, it's superb quality writing, which which yeah. very much appeals to me. But I think he's 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 identified the problem, which is you know you've got effectively to take it back to to, to Brexit. You've got an urban metropolitan, basically London centric metropolitan elite. And I I happen to suspect. I mean, Paul, feel free to chime in here. Uh, we live in the similar part of the town in sort of North London. Um, you've got a, an urban metropolitan elite that is completely out of touch with the feeling in the rest of the country. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't speak. So, what, so, what, so what's happening in Parliament feels like completely surreal. And this, I'm sorry to keep going back to this thread, but, you know, it's the, it's the way, it's, it's actually the way I see it. I've, I've looked at it a lot, and whether it's right or wrong, it's definitely the, the, way, the way that I see it. That that divorce is part is part of the same split, oh, and what's happening now? The the parties are never going to be the same again after this. There's a there's a domestically there's a complete realignment happening in British politics right now, that will that will will be having consequences long after this this whole thing is done and dusted, if it's ever done and dusted. Uh, to go back to the leave or stay and i just want to i really want to make this clear because i remember writing at the ft when i was at writing one day in an art thing at the ft this guy said to me um 
when Polish women are raped in the street, that will be your fault. What? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's just absolutely. Disgraceful. What a disgraceful thing to say. Yeah. Well, you know, this is, we tend to think that the only place where this kind of crap goes on is at the tabloids. It's not. You know, you can be a complete arsehole with a posh accent reading a pink paper, you know? Yeah. Uh, that, that, so anyway, but I dealt, I dealt with that, and he ended up, I think, uh, wishing he'd never said any, anything in the first place. But I've lost my track now. Do you know, that was such a horrible moment when, you know. Um, I can imagine going, yeah. thinking back to that must have been, must have been terrible. But like you yeah, say. Yeah, it was a horrible, it was a horrible moment. I've completely lost, lost my track. I, could, I couldn't actually believe. But if we're going back to the topic effectively of how, of how Brexit has been, let's say, given massively partisan slanted coverage by, by the media. What, what I find most um, uh, frustrating about this process is that some of us, some, some of the people who voted leave, myself included, did so for what we would consider entirely rational economic reasons. For example, one of the guys that I, I have most time for, we continually discuss his analysis on, on this podcast, is Russell Napier. And Russell Napier is a financial historian. Anatomy of the Bear. Anatomy of the Bear is his book, Study of Bear Market Bottoms. He's, he's, a, he's a financial historian, so he's written about you know, histories of, of, of mania and crashes in the past. And he teaches a very good two-day course of practical history and financial markets. And the coverage that he's, he's done recently, uh, so, so to, to, get, to get straight to the point, there is something called the BRRD, which is the Banking uh, Recovery and Resolution Directive. This was instituted in EU law in 2014. And what the BRRD means is that if you're a depositor at an insolvent Eurozone bank, you can expect to get bailed in now, yes. as, as you were in Portugal, as you were in Cyprus. So, you know, effectively, you go to bed on a Friday night with 100 euros in the bank, and you wake up on Monday morning, and mysteriously, your 100 euros is now only 90 or 80 euros or whatever whatever arbitrary figure they decide they're going to take. Yeah. And Russell then goes on to say, okay, so why – his argument is basically why are what, – firstly, what is the state of the Euro, Eurozone financial system? The answer is it's on its knees because of negative interest rates and all the rest. Yeah. Um, but also, he goes on to say, why, why are people so apparently happy – to own German government bonds or bunts at a negative yield, given that they're paying for the privilege of owning of owning debt, which is nonsensical in any in any universe. And he says it's actually quite rational to the extent that if you're a big institution that would otherwise have money on deposit, say with Deutsche Bank, then if you're running the risk of Deutsche Bank's insolvency and and you know missing uh, risking potentially everything. It makes a lot of sense if you take your money out of Deutsche Bank and lend it to the German government instead, even if you have to pay for the privilege of doing so. And as Russell goes on to, to make the point, that is a bank run. Now, it's not being called it because our financial media isn't up to the task. But nevertheless, that's a bank run. So to yeah. go back to the Brexit, for some of us, we're saying, well, we know how bad things are in the Eurozone. QE isn't working. NERP isn't working. Um, so one of the reasons I voted out, uh, apart from all of the, the positive factors like having trade deals with the rest of the world, which is growing much more quickly than the eurozone, it's well we're trapped in a burning building. The roof is about to collapse. I would personally rather be outside that burning building than inside it, paying for the paying for the the aftermath. And that's another thing that I find disgraceful that our modern uh, conventional financial media hasn't even addressed. 
there's never been any coverage of why why the Eurozone project is palpably failing on on every level, except through people like John Gray. But the new statement is not exactly mainstream media. It's it's always been out on the the, the fringes of the left. So nobody on the on the, on the side that you would expect to be defending free market capitalism or something approximating to the laissez-faire, nobody's covering this stuff. And I'm thinking that's that's an absolute you know, abnegation of duty. There's the also me- no, there's, the media has been profoundly failing through this period. Yeah. There's also the fact that if you go back to when we were supposed to join the euro in you know get rid of sterling and join the euro, and all the countries that were supposed to drop their sovereign country currencies. And just didn't. So Poland being one of them, they were supposed to drop the Zloty and take the euro. And they haven't. Why haven't they? Doesn't make any sense. If, if everything's going so well, why haven't they adopted the currency? Nobody's asking those questions. But they're just yeah. saying, nothing to see here. Everything's, everything's fine. And it's obviously not fine. I mean, Turkey was supposed to join the eurozone. I mean, it's like, what? And look what's happened to their currency. I mean, it's just... It's just bizarre. I mean, the whole the whole project was put together on the basis of the fact that the, the the whole economic environment at the time was so positive that that's the only time you could ever bring this project together. If you started from now, you would not be able to do it. It would just be impossible. And no. that was an argument I was using at the time and before it even got together there's there's no way you're only doing this because you've got blue sky as soon as the market volatility comes in as soon as you've you've got pressures of different rates of growth within the eurozone if you if they're if they're if they're accelerating due to a recession or a non-functioning economy you would not be able to do this it wouldn't make any sense you wouldn't be begging for turkey to come into the eurozone when their economy is imploding it just wouldn't make any sense. So no. it, it doesn't take much thought beyond, you know, it, it, it do, doesn't the market move in cycles to work out that, that you're going to eventually arrive at a cycle that is not conducive to the Euro project. And then what do you do? And and that's, again, part of the problem. I mean, I think what you're saying, Mark, about crony capitalism, uh, capitalism um, imploding, I think that is got to be one of the best things that's ever going to happen if that is if that's the case i'd really yes. hope i'd really hope that's the case but yes I, but it's it's a bit like the ability of these central banks to print as much money as they want they they almost have infinite power so how would it happen yeah well yeah i, I mean i'm with you there i think it is a good thing but i think it's beyond that it's not i'm not arguing for it it's happening it mm. is going to happen and just like an avalanche, you could stand there and, you know, you could you could line up a number of hair dryers and try and keep it in place or whatever. It, it's going to happen. You know, it's like King Canute uh, demonstrating to his idiot bureaucrats that one cannot hold back the tide. Interestingly, how that how that metaphor has been used, because most people use it to say, well, he to thought be, he could. To be critical of Canute, whereas he was actually making a point. He was actually making a point, yeah. You can't stop it. And I think this is, the point that you just made there is really important, Paul, because this is where the pot, the political and the economic come together. You can't build a system on a lie. You can't build something on a deception. And if you do, that initial deception will, will 
it will come out. The truth will out uh, sooner or later. So with with the with the Euro project, I mean, I I think I think uh, a, a continent of freely trading, getting along countries is a brilliant idea. I don't think a European superstate is a brilliant idea. And the iron and steel community that was set up in the 50s from which it all it, it all came the 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 reason of the founders the found what was on the founders minds if you like was not free trade it was always a european state always well it was it was is in part to prevent another costly war between france and germany yeah i, I was i was over in luxembourg a week ago um to visit a as uh, part of a board meeting for a company that we're involved with and the night before that the board meeting took place, I actually went to number two Place de Metz, which is where the European coal and steel community was founded in the early 50s. And what's really funny is that there's a brass plaque on the corner of the building. Um, and it says this EC on when it, whatever year it was, um, you know, that the work of the European coal and steel community first began. And obviously, of course, that became the European Union. So that's yeah. ground zero. And it says this is where our work first began. And I've actually got a, I, I took a, a video of it on my phone because right, right in front of that building, there's a giant pile of sand and building materials and construction stuff. And I was simply making this sort of ironic point. Their work began, whatever it was, 70 years ago, and it's still nowhere near completion. <laughs> yeah. It's still a mess. Yeah. Anyway, that's sort of, you know, slight, slight personal. I thought you were going <laughs> to. Oh. But it's 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 just you know so, what, what, on, on the topic of, of, of like sort of no no more war in Europe. Firstly, the EU is taking credit for stuff that NATO's actually achieved, and secondly, one, one of the, the sort of the great ironies of, of Brexit is that uh, hopefully the UK is actually walking away from the burning building. But my my colleague uh, Nick Hubble, I think it is at South Bank Research, which is a, a business that I, I write for occasionally, makes the point that. You know, Paul, Paul talked about blue sky, a blue sky environment. Now, the reality is that it's been a blue sky environment, which has led meant that apart from the UK, nobody's put any money into defending uh, defending sort of eurozone interests at a military level. So when Germany was recently on manoeuvres, their army had um, painted black wooden um, broom broom handles in lieu of guns because no, they don't have any guns. No, no I don't. None of their, I don't you, you've, got, Force, you've got to be joking. Uh, You've got to be none, of their, none of their planes work. They they have a navy that can't that can't uh, go to sea and an air force that can't take off. Nobody in Europe has spent any money on their military apart from us, and we've been we've been shortchanging ourselves. This the, everything about this is delusional. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't I, I don't know where to start. You're 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 making all of these these points, and I could talk for ten minutes on any of them. Uh, so it's a bit it's. To go back to the economic thread, the if you look at the euro, that was the euro. Uh, if they if the euro had been set up properly, it would have been set up by um, bringing all the debt together, like Andrew Jackson did in the US. The the debt would have been consolidated. You would have had, uh, and then countries would have been able to borrow individually, like states can in the US. But you would have basically consolidated the debt. You would have done it completely differently. And I believe they knew that they they should have done that, but they would. But that is essentially a, a statement of federalism, mm. and it's what it's what the European Commission want is a federal Europe. 
people weren't ready to swallow it then and they're not ready to swallow it now. So what they did was they they introduced a basically a flawed currency with the idea that we'll put that in place and we'll do it later when people haven't when people don't really notice what we're doing or when it has become a fait accompli. And it isn't going to become a fait accompli. If you create a currency like that, you're effectively um, double the double the value of, of of the Greek debt. You know, so essentially you're setting it up so that poor countries are going to get poorer and rich countries are going to do. Uh, the, if you had the Deutschmark going into the euro, you did very nicely. If you had the um, if you had the Greek currency, I can't even remember what it is. The drachma. Drachma. The drachma, you didn't. And so, but Draghi has worked himself into a position now where he basically, uh, he owns the debt market uh, because, and nobody else nobody else is, is going to want to buy it. To go back to the point you made earlier, Tim, about uh, people buying German debt, um Absolutely, I can see why people do that. It is a run on the bank market, but then you also have to say, well, you know, who who is who really wants to buy uh, Italian debt unless Draghi's going to keep buying it? So people are buying it for people are buying debt for speculative purposes. I.e., we'll take um, we'll take negative interest rates because the, the rates are going to get more negative. But that's a, that's just a variation on greater fool theory, which yeah, is, it is a great yeah, absolutely. Well, you buy the market because you can always sell it on to some other sucker further down the further down the road. Yeah. Also, pension schemes have to buy. I mean, you will know more about this than I do, but they they have to buy a certain amount of sovereign debt. So you've got a captive market there. And I think what will happen eventually is that um, a lot of people think that the, the dollar is going to crash. I think. The debt crisis, when it starts, is going to start in it, probably in Europe, but possibly in in the emerging markets. America is going to be the last place that's going to get hit. Their problem is going to be um, money rushing into into their debt markets because basically the European, the the U.S. Treasury market is the only market big enough. The dollar is the only market big enough to take capital when it when it's looking for somewhere to hide. I mean, when they have, as and when this whole thing sort of just ignites, and when they do the post mortem on on the euro uh, project, um, I, I suspect historians are going to say, well, there was an enormous amount of uh, what's the phrase hubris around this because what 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 the European Community tried to do was they tried to railroad through in the space of perhaps a decade stuff that it took the US about 150 years to orchestrate, and yeah. that was for the far more coherent, far more uh, cohesive society and social model and a common language, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas now you're looking at a kind of bastardized, mongrelized, you know, smorgasbord of 27, 28 different countries, you know, who are wildly different when it comes comes to it, you know, in terms of cultural and history and language and everything else. And it, just, it, was, a, it was a bridge too far. It was, it was 100 bridges too far. Mm-hmm. But they, because they got impatient, it was all done in a hurry by people who aren't economically uh, aware. Yeah, and it, and so the economic thread and the political thread all come together, so that now what you've got is is a completely unstable, unstable situation. We we have 
riots happening all over the world. We have we have peoples standing up all over the world saying this system isn't working for us. And you can pretend that something like Brexit is happening independently all of this, if you like. But actually, the, the globe, it, we live in a system. We don't live in, a, in isolated bits. And what's happening globally is a breakdown of trust in government. So why am I against? Why did I vote to leave? Because I, I fundamentally have an issue with the centralization of power. Uh, centralization of power in a complex system is a disaster waiting to happen. And the, the European Commission, the, the, the way it's set up is undemocratic. You can't tell me it's democratic to have an elected parliament that can't introduce legislation. That is fundamentally undemocratic. And so I am against the, the I'm against any centralization of power and I'm against bullshit. And the EU is a prime example of both. It's a bullshit centralization of power. And that's why I'm against it. I'm certainly not against it because uh, of the reasons that are uh, that generally trotted out because the debate has got has become so low level now. You know, if I if I follow it on on Twitter, it's like um, the left is eating itself over this issue. The right is eating itself over this issue. And again, I think that speaks to the point that I made initially. Sorry to keep banging on about my own point, but we're, we're witnessing a breakdown and a realignment politically economically, domestically, internationally. And when normally sane people uh, start ripping each other's throats out and can only focus on the issue that they disagree about, that's another symptom. And that's happening on the left and it's happening on the right. So how, does this, over. how, does, how does this play out then, do you think? In, in as much as it's possible to forecast something that's so inherently uh, you know, uncertain. What in term? How does it play out in terms of well, globally, we, we by hook or by crook, we are going to have a new monetary system. Um, the 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 reserve the, the dollar reserve system is going to break down. It has to break down. It's bad for everybody, but nobody's got the balls to actually say. They're all positioning themselves for to get ringside seats in whatever happens next. The Ch China and Russia have been have been buying gold like it's going out of fashion. Um, so we're going to get a new monetary system. Like most things with human beings, we're probably going to have to have a crisis before we do it, because we can't just get together and say, "Look, this isn't working. Let's let's create a new system." There will be a crisis. It will, it will probably make the last one look like a stroll in the park because this time the debt, the, the debt levels are astronomically higher. So when it, when it hits, it's going to be ridiculous. So that, that's going to need to happen. Um, economic power is moving from, from the west to the east. Um, politically, the... the the Americans are living in cloud cuckoo land. I mean, when I hear American politicians talking about anything, I just I think, how can you guys vote for this shit? How can you vote for this shit? Because the answer to everything is 
is braggadocio. We've got a bigger willy than you. And it fundamentally doesn't work. So do you do you foresee the possibility of uh, not just a trade war, but a hot war between the US and China at some point? I don't know. John Pilger definitely thinks that 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 is is a possibility and a likelihood. I mean, I know that what they're trying to do economically and politically is to disrupt is to disrupt the Silk Road. So, you know, this sudden interest in Afghanistan again. I don't know how many times I've heard people, American politicians, saying that they should pull out. But the, the sudden interest in Afghanistan again is there for a number of reasons, as I see it. One is to disrupt the the uh, Chinese trade routes from east to west. Uh, two, because it borders with Iran, and they still haven't given up the idea of of uh, taking out Iran, which is one of the seven countries that they they initially wanted to topple. Um, I can't remember what the third reason was, but those are the those are the two main reasons. So, could there could there be a war with China? Absolutely, they could. All of a sudden, it's taking a bit of a <laughs> conversation. It's taking a bit of a somewhat dark, dark turn. Yeah, well, you're talking to me. It usually does get a bit dark when I'm talking. How <laughs> <laughs> uh, how how might politics change in 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 our country in the UK, how, or, or potentially in Europe, but mainly in the UK? Do you think? How will politics change? Yes, I mean, if there's a reform, if there's if 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 there's going to be a big shakeout, there'll be a big financial shakeout, but there'll yeah. also be a big. Does our political system work? We don't. We don't think it does. I mean, it's things aren't could, working. Could could we have, for example, something closer to um, the kind of sort of localized politi- politics, localized sort of referenda type approach that the Swiss use? Or is the answer just to get rid of the influence of the EU and, and then then things will settle down? Um, no, I, 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 yeah, I, I think that it's it's gone it's gone way too far. It's not we're not going to go back to a nice, steady, even two party system that changes every two or three elections. It's it, you know we're we're too far gone. I remember reading a book about um, you know the Civil War and how it completely ripped families apart for generations afterwards. Uh, I have heard one or two stories about you know people getting people getting divorced because of Brexit. I don't think it's going to get that. I don't think it's going to get as bad as it did in the Civil War. Um, but I do think politics can't go back to what it was because the, the genie's out of the bottle now. People have seen people have seen the hubris. They've seen the bullshit. They've seen politicians say, we promise you we will do this. And then 10 minutes later, I mean, it is it is so glaringly apparent now. It astonishes me that anybody could trust any politician. I, I, I you know, I um, challenge anybody to name one politician that has come through this with their integrity intact. I mean, I would I would give you two. I'd give you Steve Baker MP in uh, the UK, the UK onshore uh, parliament. I'd give you Dan Hannan 
who's the MEP. Uh, and that's not that's not because they're conservatives necessarily, but it's because I think they're both the most principled advocates of Brexit and have behaved relative to everybody else in Parliament. They've behaved exceptionally um, dispassionately. But I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be challenged on that. No, no, I'm not familiar with. I'm not that familiar. Steve Baker, I would agree. I would agree with you. He seems to have had maintained his position the whole way through. I don't. I can't remember him uh, altering his position to to go with to, to blow with the wind. Um, so so yeah. But if you look at the if you look at the um, the major parties. Um, so if you can bear to look at the Lib Dems, you know, they, they go to the polls saying that they will honour the election, they will honour the Brexit decision, and then they don't. And not only do they not, they're actively, I think she's, I actually remember hearing her say in one interview, uh, or, or was it the Green, was it uh, the, 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 the Green, whose name escapes me at the moment. Which is not a slant on her. I'm just dreadful with names. Uh, Caroline but Lucas is the only Caroline Lucas, MP. yeah, who said um, we should have another referendum. And the interviewer said, "Well, would you accept it if they vote Lean again, leave again?" And she said, "Probably not." Oh bloody hell! So it says but it all, doesn't it? It says it, it all. So you know, you're either you 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 either be, will accept a democratic decision or you won't. Um. Personally, if, if the, the decision had been to remain, I would have said, yeah, fine, fair enough, okay. Now I'll go on criticising the EU from the inside. That, you, you know. But yeah. it was apparent from day one that this was not going to be accepted. In fact, I wrote a piece, um, which I think was in the FT comments section, but it was called um, message from a referendum message from the big guy in Brussels. And I wrote it the day before the referendum. And it was a it was a satirical skit on um, Juncker talking to the British people, basically saying, you know, if you're if you're a Remainer, go go out and rise up above all of this argument, do the honourable thing, and vote to stay. You know, if you're a Lever, get yourself twelve cans of Carlin and watch Jeremy Kyle. Go out <laughs> at eight pm and spoil your ballot. You'll wake up the next morning too drunk to bother about it either way. And then at the end. The point that I made was, but actually, if it doesn't go our way, there's more than one way to skin a cat. I didn't get where I am today by taking rejection, asked David Cameron. And it's been clear from before, from the day of the result, that this wasn't going to be accepted, that everything was going to be done to change it, that the goalposts would repeatedly be changed, and that we would have a situation like France did with their with their referendum, like the Irish did with their referendum, that it goes on and on and on and on and on until it's reversed. That's not democracy. The way you, you can turn around and say, oh, well, you know, the Brexit party didn't, uh, didn't, um, they, they hit some of their expenses. I don't know if that's true or not. I've seen 
reports that said that that was true. I've seen challenges. I have to, challenges to it. I haven't sat down and gone through it line by line. I suspect neither of the people who blindly accept it gone through line by line, gone through it line by line. But it suits it suits their narrative. But what I do know is that if it if it's not that, it's another thing. If it's not that, it's another thing. You have to give some credit where credit's due because you know you look at some of the the coverage of the uh, the, the the leave campaign and the the infamous and the now infamous you know money on the side of a bus and I, I would give some credit to Dominic Cummings because he's he's he he comes across as such a sort of strategic mastermind you know a, a fairly simple. Uh, You'd call it a meme, if you like, or just a, a, an idea. This this idea of you know, 350 million people are still obsessing about that three and a half years later. You you, you have to admit he you know he managed to capture everyone's attention there, rightly or wrongly. Mm. No, but but it, surely that's that's a binder. But surely that's what you're supposed to do with a campaign. If you're campaigning to do something, you're trying to get. Well, you try, you I mean, try and win. Well, how, <laughs> you try and win. How, how many? How many? If you go back and look at politicians and what they say pre-election on every election that we've ever had. Read, read, my, read uh, my lips, no more taxes. Exactly. No. And then what happens afterwards? It's always like that. So why pick up on this? It's like, it's just it's just complete and utter nonsense. Because, uh, because and it goes back to the, to the point that you made earlier about the, you know, that people voted, that there was a, there was a, a majority voted to leave because people outside of a certain set are so utterly pissed off with politicians, they are so utterly pissed off with government per se, that they have had enough and they want to say we've had enough about something. I, uh, I mentioned uh, John Gray earlier. So this is from a piece uh, from March in the, the New Statesman. It's called Brexit has left the British political class trapped in its own history. And it's a, it's a handful of lines. The British political classes have made the same mistake that Keynes ridiculed in his early self. They have failed to understand some of the most powerful human needs. If a majority in Sunderland continues to support Brexit, despite the threat it poses to Nissan expanding its operations in the area, the reason can only be that they are irrational and stupid. The possibility that they and millions of others value some things more than economic gain is not considered. Persistently denying respect to leave voters in this way can only bring to Britain the dangerous populism that is steadily marching across the European continent. Now, I think he nails it there. Yeah. One of the things that, that, that seemed to become abundantly clear with the failed uh, vote, uh, um, Project Fear was they kept banging on about the, the costs. And it became, I think, equally clear for everybody during the, the campaign, particularly for leave voters, is there was it was more than just economics uh, at stake here. So they say in, in most elections, people tend to sort of pat their wallet as they go into the uh, polling booth. Um, I, I can only speak for myself, but you know, both at a personal and professional level, I did not expect to immediately benefit from leave. Though I happen to think that we will do immeasurably better as a country uh, in the longer term. But this was never about money in isolation. It may have been for Remainers, but I don't think it was for Leavers. Yeah, I know. It's it's the 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 the, the tendency to actually assume that you know why somebody else voted seems to be so overtake. Yeah, the the arrogance of it. You know, and you can 
if you can call you can call it uh, stupidity, you can call it racist, you can call it ignorant, you can call it, you can you can make it wrong until you're blue in the face. People are pissed off. They may be pissed off in show their pissed offness in different ways. They may show their distrust of the way of the status quo in different ways, but it manifests in different ways in different places. And that vote was a vote to say, we've had enough. The people out on the streets in Paris right now are out on the streets because they've had enough. The people in Catalonia have had enough. I don't know if you've heard, uh, we've had Dominic Frisby on uh, the show before, and we'll have him on again uh, in part so he can talk about his new book, which is about tax. But you may have heard Dominic Frisby's song, 17 Million F-Offs. Yeah. <laughs> it was a protest vote. Yeah, and I, I absolutely was a protest vote. It was, but it wasn't just one thing. But the the, the thing that I find, and, and I'm sure my ranting, uh, you know, sorry about this. I can't remember the last time I, I sounded quite as frustrated as I must sound now. But uh, the media don't get it. They don't get it. You can't make. You can make 17.4 million people wrong if you want, but it's not going to go anywhere nice. It's not going to work. You can brand it populism. You know, you can sit in your stupid ivory tower like Martin Wolf at the FT and talk about populism. Um, but, I mean, it just goes to show the extent to which language is being debauched because populism effectively just becomes, the, you know, basically what happens to democracy when I don't get the result I expected. Exactly. Exactly. So how, how do you think things will, will, will pan out with the, um, you know, the prospects of a, a general election this year? I, I don't, I'm not an expert on politics by any stretch of the imagination, but from what I could see, there was progress being made on Brexit, you know, Johnson was pushing things through, and okay, so he didn't get the vote he wanted. But why? He came, he came pretty. He came pretty close. Came though. pretty close. So, so why? Why do we need? See, my fear about a Labour government is that if you have an election, if you don't have an election, there's no chance of a Labour government. Um, why do we need to have an election in order to make Brexit go through? Um, I mean, because. Well, there is a... I, I, I find it difficult to answer that question. Yeah, I would, I would, I would say because a bunch of quislings in Parliament have, have have made it made it so nobody wanted this except a, people who've never accepted the result to begin with. It, I think they've gone to all kinds of ridiculous basil faultyish lengths to get their own way. But this party, this, this this Parliament is utterly rancid, and it should go. I th I, it 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 is completely. Gone beyond its beyond its use. I mean, and oh God, where do you start? The, yeah, what, I, what, I mean, what, I, I, what I, I place think, you start? What place there's got to be an election? One, one place you start is uh, if you're elected on a, a manifesto representing one party, and then you change sides, you should stand in a by-election immediately. Yes. Yeah, that's one thing that should happen. That's a so great, that's the, a fact great that the fact that the Lib Dem numbers are swelled by about 20 odd people who've never actually stood for the Lib Dems, it, mm -hmm. it shows you everything about this rancid process. 
Yeah. Just a yeah. giant con. Yeah. So, so I, I think that um, if you look at what's – if you look at uh, – the process a, a, a year or so ago was you had a – you had a someone who was fundamentally, philosophically, emotionally a Remainer leading the Leave Party, and someone who was fundamentally, philosophically, emotionally a, a, a Lever leading the Remain Party. Mm. I th- I think that um, still the 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 best. The, the best of the best debate that I've heard about whether we should be in the European Union um, happened 40 years ago. Listen to people like Tony Benn or Peter Shaw. Peter Shaw in particular. Talking about about this. We are, you know, whatever you think about, pol- about politics at that time, we had some political adults, this lot of midgets. Um, the standard of the debate has been terrible. I think Jeremy Corbyn uh, is, if he had not been leader of the Labour Party, he would have um, he would have uh, campaigned to leave. Um, I don't think he's, I don't think he's ever been com- entirely comfortable with uh, with the Labour Party's position. But I don't think he's a coward. I think he genuinely is uh, is a Democrat in the sense that he's been elected to lead the Labour Party. If that's the, if that's the position of the Labour Party, he will sponsor. He will he will put it forward. He will back it. But I don't think he's. I, I don't think he's, he would ever have found himself in the position that he's in now if he were he not leader of the Labour Party. So I think that. It, it, I did, the whole process is it's gone to the point now where I have absolutely no idea what will happen. I was reading something about it this morning saying that Johnson's only honor, the only honorable thing for him to do if he can't get this through is not to accept the 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 uh the latest offer but simply to resign. Now if, what, if he did, if he did that what would happen then? I have absolutely no idea. At this point, I'm just waiting to see what happens. Yeah, yeah. It's it's um. See, my limited understanding of, of how this is being engineered, shall we say, I just had this feeling that at some point, and this this was quite a while ago, what would happen is the the Tories would implode in one way or another, and then there would be a general election, and then whoever campaigns on the side of of Remain some reason would get in i'm not saying that's not what people would vote for but somehow they would get in um and then there'd be another another uh, you know another vote which would then fall to remain for some reason and that would be it and i i i you know that's just a perhaps that's just my fear of how it will go down but it's it's worryingly seeming to happen like that in in terms of we're getting to the point where there's now a chance of Another government coming in with a with a remain mandate, and that shouldn't we shouldn't even be discussing it. We shouldn't we should there should it shouldn't be possible. So you know I hope that that obviously doesn't happen, but I just fear that that this is how it's being engineered, and the fact that you know people like yourself and Tim who know so much about politics just have absolutely. You know, and I'm not saying you should know. Nobody knows how this is going to go down, which means that there's 
huge uncertainty about whether the process will actually have a conclusion makes me even more concerned about it. But yeah. Um, but I just, I obviously, I just hope that that that's not the case. I hope that it just it it works. It happens. Yeah. It's a difficult one to call, isn't it? It really is, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Democracy should be clear-cut. There's a vote. We voted to leave. That's it. I mean, I, the shenanigans in Parliament, you can follow them blow by blow, which seems to be going on in Twitter, um, which I cannot engage with because otherwise I would probably smash my phone. Um, you know, <laughs> so I tried to take a step back and then think, well, you know, listen around the headlines and listen to what people say about what they think will happen next. And this latest step really confused me because I thought, well, hang on, I, I can see why the Conservatives would call a, want to call a general election because they, they're very high up in the polls and they want to put it to the, the people. And if they get a majority, then, you know, we, we could push this through. I'm, I'm thinking that, that that does sound like a sensible way forward. But knowing how things can be spun and, and swung in other directions, you know, we did think that, that, that Conservatives would have had a greater lead at the last election, and they certainly didn't. And so there's always a risk of things swinging the other way, and that's really not what, yes. as I said before, you don't want the biggest risk of having a Corbyn government is to not allow an election, you know, to let him in before Brexit happens, certainly. I mean, afterwards, yeah, okay, if that's, if that's going to be... The case, then fine, that's the case. But you don't want him in, you know, preventing Brexit. Or anyone else for that matter. I, I think that, uh, you know, I bet the polls do show, the latest one I saw, I think the, the Tories have at least a 10-point lead. But as you say, there is no there is no guarantee in an election. And the Tories lost the last one because uh, Theresa May basically said, we're going to run the whole campaign from me in a studio. Um, it was the worst campaign I've ever seen in my life. Jeremy Corbyn ran a fantastic campaign. He went out and he talked to people. Yeah. He did the, you know, if you remember the, uh, the Kinnock and uh, Major campaign, when um, the, the Labour Party were using a lot of razzmatazz and, and made John Major was out there on a on, his, on, his soap soap, on a soapbox talking to people, um, that's what people need, that, and that's why people that's why people like Jeremy Corbyn because he gets out there and he talks to people and he's genuinely interested in people. Um, but I don't think I don't think. Uh, I, a general election uh, at the moment is, I think the Labour, people who would vote Labour are going to be just as split and as just as confused as anybody else. Because, uh, you, you know, you mentioned Sunderland. The people the people in Sunderland, uh, I can't imagine them agreeing with Labour's stance on this at all. So... They've got. They may have a lot. They may have. They may like Jeremy Corbyn. They may hate the banks. They may be totally in favour of a lot of his policies. They may support his stance on Palestine. I do, by the way. Um, but they don't support what the Labour Party has done around Brexit. What does? What effect does that have on on the Labour vote? Nobody knows. 
I think you 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 made a very good point earlier about the economic situation underlying all of this. And I, I think if there is a big lurch lower in the markets driven by some capitulation in the bond markets, then that that could completely upend politics. It would just yeah. make it so random um, that that we would have no idea who would get in, despite the 10-point lead that's showing at the moment. But the, wow. the markets themselves, you know, the, the American markets seem to be moving along okay at the moment, and the emerging markets are the same. But it very much feels like, said it, said it before, but we're in the, the final stages of something because, it, it, like you say, this cannot continue um, no. politically or economically. And well, the, the thing, the thing for me, Paul, that, that, that is most dangerous is the to have the requirement for a another bank bailout now. If if Brexit doesn't give us civil war, then a bank, a, a new bank bailout will. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Mark Carney, don't get me started on him. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because we we've just set up the uh, the the bell size and um, Golders Golders Hill Mark Carney Appreciation Society. <laughs> we, we're huge fans. <laughs> well, you, I know. You, mentioned, you, mentioned, you mentioned you mentioned Knut earlier. That's 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 how I've been referring to Mister Carney for quite a while now. <laughs> there's there's a lady that we're hoping to get on to the podcast. Her name's Danielle Di Martino Booth, and she's ah yes, yes, she's very good. Written former, book Fed um, uh, former member of the Fed. Yes, uh, she's very non PhD. <laughs> yeah, she's she's very interesting. Very interesting. She is. Yeah, I very much like what she had to say, and we'll, we'll put a link to her video. But we're hoping to get her on the podcast. But that that. That says a lot. I mean, that says her her presentation says a lot. I think her, her book will be very interesting. It's it it shares a, a name with um. There's a, a documentary about food called Fed Up, which is really good. So yes. I'm, I'm I'm hoping they'll make a documentary about um about her uh, her book because I think it'd be absolutely fascinating. But yeah, yeah. I've got that book. I've, yeah, it's a very very good book. Is it right? I I think I will get will get it then. Yeah, it's it's the it's the skinny on what the Fed's like on the inside and how arrogant and uh, absurd the the PhDs are because they're all you, you've got you've got f whole floors of PhDs and if you don't have a PhD they don't want to they don't want to have to talk to you they don't think you have a an opinion that's worth listening to so someone like her who, who's come in from a journalist background with a market background. Yes, because she 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 used to work. She you know she knows what a trading desk, how a trading desk works. She knows, uh, you know, she knows all of that stuff. But she hasn't got a PhD in economics, so she can. So when she can see the wood from the trees, that she, her voice was a cry in the wilderness because they can't see the wood or the trees. Yes, it's it's like the the. Um... The story that Taleb talks about about the the trader who was he was a fantastic trader, and yeah. he was trading, making a, a lot of money out of green lumber, and he actually knew nothing at all about green lumber, but he knew how to trade it, and the the thing with markets and how markets operate is you, they don't you don't need a PhD to understand them you need to understand markets. That there was a he talks about another trader called Fat Tony who was a, a great 
to, you know, perhaps not a great orator and he didn't have a PhD, certainly, but he was a fantastic trader because he understood psychology and he would trade the Swiss franc, but he probably didn't know where Switzerland was on a map. Yeah. And so <laughs> what you're dealing with, with markets is you're, you're dealing with people and complex systems and to think you can reduce them to equations and the, the more, the more, uh, you know, qualifications you've got, the better qualified you are to talk about markets is so utterly ridiculous. But it's ridiculous on so many levels because history's proved to us that that's the case. You know, history's proved to us that long-term capital management had probably the brightest minds in, in the financial system at the time. Yet, yes. they, yet they couldn't work out the simple fact that you can't reduce risk to zero in any trading system. So yes. their big problem was they thought they'd, they'd literally thought they'd got rid of risk. And that's, anyone would tell you with half a brain that that's impossible. You don't get something for nothing. It's like on YouTube occasionally or some spammy places, you might see a new energy system that makes unlimited energy from nothing. And, and they, you know, they try to show this light bulb being powered on by itself, by this other system, you know. And, but you just know that can't work. It's, it's just the yeah. laws of physics say it doesn't work. So yeah. therefore, that's bullshit. And yes. So, so if if you go back to the long term capital management bailout, some people say that was the be beginning of the end of the financial system as we knew it because it it, it you had the Greenspan put and it went on from there. But yeah, I, I think Jim, Tim's right. Jim Rickards wrote about it, didn't he? Yeah, I, but I think Tim's right. I think it goes back to the debasement of 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 the dollar and coming off the gold standard. You know, I, on the on the on the topic of the, the PhD standard, I, I wanted to share one of my favorite quotes, which is from Satyajit Das. Um, Most economists, it seems, believe strongly in their own superior intelligence and take themselves far too seriously. In his open letter of 22nd July 2001 to Joseph Stiglitz, Kenneth Rogoff identified this problem. Quote, one of my favorite stories from that era is a lunch with you and our former colleague, Carl Shapiro, in which the two of you started discussing whether Paul Volcker merited your vote for a tenured appointment at Princeton. At one point, you turned to me and said, Ken, you used to work for Volcker at the Fed. Tell me, is he really smart? I responded something to the effect of, well, he was arguably the greatest Federal Reserve chairman of the 20th century, to which you replied, but is he smart like us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that just about sums it up. It does. I mean, the whole that whole equilibrium model of economics is complete and utter garbage. Uh, the maths don't work. So every time somebody comes along and says, yes, but that's not the way the world works, uh, they have to invent a new theory. So what one was, well, the rational actor. Yeah, the homo economicus. Yeah. So that could have only been that, that uh, the the idea that markets are rational, that human beings are rational, is the most irrational pile of bullshit I've ever heard in my life. Yes. We're human beings. We're not rational. We're rational and sometimes rational, sometimes emotional. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole econo the, the, eco the hierarchy of economic gurus, very, very dangerous people. It's okay if they're in a bank somewhere and just writing a bit of research that that, that no one's ever going to read. No one's ever going to yeah. read exactly. But when they're running the country and making decisions, you know that's why hedge funds exist. Because if if they did a proper job, the market wouldn't 
have any volatility. It, it, it would just work properly. But it, of course it doesn't, and it can never, it can never. And in some way, I had to sort of rationalise getting angry about this stuff like a long time ago. And I came to the conclusion that actually what it does in a pure market sense is create opportunity. And therefore, in some ways, despite its frustration, we have to embrace it. But it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a bit of a cop out, but it's, it's the, the only way I can deal with it, to be, to be frank. Yeah. But, but um, Mark, I wanted to ask, where, where, where can we read? I mean, I, I've, I've not had the pleasure of reading any of your stuff and I don't subscribe to the FT. So how could I get hold of, of your writings? Um, I, well, I have a blog, which is, which I've had for a number of years. I don't put so many long form pieces on there anymore because I've been, I've been invaded by the Twitter virus. Ah, right. Yeah. Okay. So I've now, I now try and, uh, my discipline is to try and d- condense an idea into 280 characters. Um, but I've still got my blog, which is markgb.com. Um, and you, my, my published stuff is at Renegade Inc. They've published about 20 of my things. That's, um, hang on, I've got the, if somebody wants to, to read something, I would suggest, uh, I've written an article that I referred to earlier called The Quickening, which describes basically the, what I think is happening. I'd love to read that. Where, where would I get that from? You'd get that at renegade.inc, uh, renegade Inc, or one word. So R-E-N-E-G-A-D-E-I-N-C dot com forward slash the quickening. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we'll put uh, the quick, hang on, the, um, the quickening, it's the hyphen quickening. And if you wanted to see me talking about this, that they made a show and it was on RT. It went out on the RT Monday slot that Renegade make a program for them every Monday. And that is at, um, oh God, it's a, it's a longer address, but basically it's at rt.com. Uh, one of the shows there we went out. To, we can link to it in the show notes, uh, Mark. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it went I'll, out on the first of July. I'll, I'll find it and I'll, I'll stick it on the show notes for our listeners because I know they're okay. going to be wanting that for sure. Um, Tim, should we go to media picks, or do you think there is there Why anything? I, 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 I'm, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say in relation to to what Mark just mentioned about the, the short form versus the long form. It strikes me that Twitter is is actually. Is where haiku meets fuck you. I thought that was quite anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And on that bombshell. On that bombshell. Uh, so my mine is actually going to be a Twitter-related uh, post. So I don't know if you've seen this one yet, Paul, but this is the, as much fun as you'll have on Twitter today. Have you seen the? Uh, well, maybe maybe you should get out more. Maybe I I fo- should, well, and I follow yeah. you, so you know. <laughs> um, have you heard the story about the Washington Post yet? No. So the Washington, so you know that this guy, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdad, has just been uh, yes. killed in yes, a, yeah. a U.S. Uh, forces raid in uh, the Middle East, yeah. the ISIS leader. Yeah. So the Washington Post originally had a headline calling him an austere religious scholar, and then Twitter got to hear about it 
So they changed they changed the uh, the headline I think three times. No. So he, he was originally Islamic State's terrorist in chief, and then he became Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, austere religious scholar at helm of Islamic State. And I f- quite forget what they're calling it now. But on the back of that, the the Twitter crowd, the Twitter community, has started something. Uh, it's obviously it's it's, it's in questionable taste, but it's a hashtag Warpo death notices, and I've I've got involved. <laughs> so for example, I'll give you an example. Today, we remember Vlad the Impaler. He spearheaded initiatives that touched the hearts of many. <laughs> um, and, and, twi- and Twitter has risen to the occasion magnificently on this one. So um, I've, I've pitched in with a few, and people can, can find that on my, my, my Twitter handle, which is at, at Tim F. Price. Um, but I've gone with, um, I don't know, does anyone remember Dennis Nielsen? Yes. Uh, uh, well, Dennis Nielsen, friend to the young, recycler and unconventional host, passes away at 72. Or if you don't like that one, how about <laughs> In Memoriam, Jack the Ripper, groundbreaking female anatomist of the Victorian era, fated, <laughs> fated, to, fated to pursue his career in undeserved obscurity. Did you write it, that? that those, those, are, those are TP originals. They're there's fantastic. A, there's, a few more, there's a few more on there. But basically, Twitter has gone to town on this one. So, it's, it's, so my submission for this week is hashtag WAPO death notices. It's Brilliant. the funniest thing you'll read today. Excellent. Brilliant. Brilliant. I shall go there. <laughs> Mark, we, we like to finish up with um, media picks. I don't know if you have anything that you've seen or read or a book or anything. It can be anything, literally, that you think is either absolutely fantastic or you think it's awful. Um, it doesn't have to be financial related. Um, it can be can be anything. Yeah. Um, there's a an article written this week by uh, Caitlin Johnson, who's a, a, an Australian uh, freelance journalist, and she's written it. It takes about four minutes to read this, not a long article, but it's called In a Society Built on War, We Must Do More Than Just Prefer Peace. And it is it is superb. It's in a nutshell. It, it's nutshell stuff. Excellent. And where, where would we get that from? Um. If you go, the, probably the easiest way to, she's got her own website and she, she's, she's published all over the place, but probably the easiest way to get it will be go to her Twitter handle, which is hashtag, uh, not hashtag, at Katoz, C-A-I-T-O-Z. And it's called, in a society built on war, we must do more than just prefer peace. Brilliant. So mine is going to be a um, a Netflix original, which is which I found very funny, and it features an actor I happen to really like. It's Paul Rudd, and it's called Living with Yourself. It's a great premise. Um, a man who works for a, a, an agency, an advertising agency, who's down on his sort of career, and um, he's trying to get his wife pregnant. It's not happening, and she's more successful than him. Um, gets given um, an opportunity to undergo an experimental treatment to improve his life and only to be replaced by a new version, a better version of himself. <laughs> and so so it's, it's a great premise. So he basically comes, comes home to find himself at home and a better version of him. And it's, it's black comedy. It's very, it's very good. Possibly a little, you could have dropped maybe one or two of the, the episodes it's a little series 
uh, to tighten it up. But I, I think it's it's well worth a watch. So I really enjoyed that. And I like Paul Rudd a lot. I think he did a brilliant job of playing two versions of himself and managing to separate them, which is quite amazing, really. Um, so Living With Yourself, that's on Netflix. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Living With Yourself. Yeah. Okay. And so, Mark, <laughs> look, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. And just before you go, we haven't had your Twitter handle, so we definitely need to get that. Uh, uh, yes, good point. Hang on, let me look at you. <laughs> <laughs> I never tweet myself. It's like knowing your, your, your wife's phone it, number or something. You never know it, really, because it's all in it, your, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I, I know hers, but I don't know mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is. Hang on, where's my profile? At, at, at Mark GB blog. At Mark yes, G how at embarrassing. No. At, you knew it and I didn't. At Mark GB blog. Awesome. Whereas the website is, is, is markgb.com and I always get them confused. Mark, please, will you come back on the podcast? Because it's just been such a pleasure. I will. I've really enjoyed it. Hope I haven't been too ranty. No, uh, no, we love but, that. But, you know, this is, uh, no, you caught me at a time, really. Well, it, I think everybody's at this time, aren't they? I mean, every, you know, who can you talk to about this? I've tried with sort of members of the family and, and who agree and disagree and friends, and you end up getting into an almighty row. So there's no there's no wonder everybody's got such a strong feeling about what's going on. So please don't apologise for that. We embrace it. Good, thank you. Well, I've, en I've enjoyed it. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, Mark. Likewise. Thank you so much thanks, for your time. Thanks, Mark. All the best. All the best. Bye now. Bye now. Thank you once again to Tim Price, my co-host, and thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for all your feedback on Twitter, on Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms that we're on. We really appreciate it. It's been fantastic. Have a great week, and we'll see you soon. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.